Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome back to another exciting uh, episode of Talks Talk. This is Matt Zuckerman, a toxicology fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology. Thank you for joining me again. For those of you that are listening to your first show, uh, you might want to go one show further back. This show is going to be a second part of a two-part series where we had a chance to interview the uh, founders and directors of the Arrowwood Center and Arrowwood website, Earth and Fire Arrowwood. And that interview was uh, so in-depth and was such a a lengthy piece that we decided to chop it into uh, digestible two parts. So you might want to hear the first part before you hear the second part. Although, if this is all you've got, it should still all make sense. And just a reminder, you can uh, check us out on the web at our website, TalksTalk.org, T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org, or you can follow more of our goings-on at our Facebook page or our Twitter feed at TalksTalk. And uh, without further ado, here is the second part of that interview. Something that somebody else asked, and I feel like something that's definitely becoming more relevant is the advocacy of the medicalization of marijuana. And um, we've actually had some discussion about that on the show. And it seems like there's definitely an advocate group that sees a medical use for it and sees it beneficial. It seems like there's also a certain undertone of, of kind of what we've been talking about, about dangerous drugs and how dangerous drugs are. And some people who just feel like it should be legal. And one of the pathways to broadening access is through medicalization. Sure. Right. right. I mean, there's, there's no question that some portion of the medicalization of cannabis is a camel's nose under the tent attempt to try to break through what has been a, a, a series of irrational policies. But to say that, that medical cannabis is a, a camel's nose under the tent is, should not be taken to mean that medical use of cannabis is not also a legitimate issue. Absolutely. Um, and I, mean, I, think, I think in a lot of ways, when, when in 19, 1996, when Proposition 215 passed in California, which semi-legalized the medical use of, of cannabis, I actually thought that if the DEA and the, the Clinton administration at the time had actually taken that up as, like, as a good idea rather than a bad idea for their policy positions and basically turn pot into grandma's medicine, right? It's sort of like, make, like actually go after making it associating can- that's exciting. Can- cannabis with boring old sick people, <laughs> right? That, that they might have actually achieved their policy aims, stated policy aims, more than... than young people than, So that the way to get young people to avoid something is to make it uncool and associated with their grandparents. Right. Oh, that's not that's a bad right. idea. You know, make make it available in really boring packages only, right? And you know, I'm I don't, I Oh no, absolutely, yeah. Well, and I think on some level, having a sense of humor with some of this is important because you get unintended consequences. I I mean, I find it interesting just from a toxicologic perspective because regardless of the medical benefits or not benefits of the substance, the fact that it's sort of passed independent of the traditional means of evaluating medicinals 
and then and now has its own right. sort of special status. And then each state that passes it sort of has to come up with almost kind of like a shadow dispensary system in an alternative option to its pharmacies. I think demonstrates that we're sort of stretching things a little bit in order to to get it out there. But that's right. my that's my personal opinion. I can't really say that that's. Uh, and then it seems like part of this discussion, too, we've talked about the unintended effects of legislation and prohibition of drugs and, and kind of the spurring on of new and more powerful substances. So do you feel like we're going to be seeing a lot more of these new drugs? And do you it seems like you're almost saying like the innovation is a bad thing. I don't think the innovation is a bad thing, but I think that the innovation and speed with which a new untested drug hits the streets and is using 17-year-old as the guinea pigs, it could be uh, could be optimized. <laughs> right. I, mean, I, I think that could, that could be ask, a little better. You have to ask the question of sort of what is the population, what's the demographics of the people who are most likely to use new un, unknown sort of gray market, not quite illegal drugs? And the answer to that is at this point sort of 16 to 25-year-olds. And so you've designed a set of policies where the result is to have basically new drugs being tested in the wild on young people and that, that and primarily that's because they want to be using something that's not illegal right not because they all have a dying need to be the first person to try a new drug and be cool because of it right there's like, no question know. that there's an, that there are some, there are some small small number of people i think it's a fairly small number of people who are really interested in in being kind of the you know the cutting edge the, the tester extreme right extreme uh, use groundbreaking yeah. Right. Right. Well, and, you know, it's experimenters. I mean, there's an experimental component, explorer. explorer component to a lot of the use of, of this kind of psychedelic and pathogen range. But I think it seems likely, and this is, this is completely speculative, I'm not stating this as fact, but that if there were a standard set of socially disapproved but Available, available at and, known known and, identity and known quant- and, quantity, and, and that you won't lose your college loan, and you won't go to if, prison. If LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin mushrooms and were, and cannabis were available, even uh, if in illegal, known doses, right. even if even if illegal, were readily available, more readily available, I think less people would be trying synthetic cannabinoids, two five I and Bome, and and uh, you know MDPV, you know, right, four MEO PCP, right. <laughs> I mean, there's just sort of this. And I think you asked at the beginning of that sentence, do we think that it's going to, it's going to continue to, to be new drugs? I think the answer, our, our current theory is yes. We're, uh, we, it feels to me more like, it seems to me more like we're at the beginning of a phase rather than the end of a phase. There seem to be choices that, that we're, we're involved on the information side. We, we believe that at least for a while there needs to be a substantial change in the way that information is managed, distributed, collected, and and uh, allow people to uh, allow some new equilibrium to be set around the way that people relate to these things. I mean, we we think that one of the kind of the fundamental issues is that for the last let's call it 100 years, sort of this kind of this this policy mindset around prohibition, where I mean, not not to exaggerate, there was you know a, the Drug Free Millennium Act was proposed in the Senate in 1999, right? The idea that there would be kind of like this. This sort of, if we know, just get the policies just right, then we can stop all the recreational right, use of drugs that happen. And, and yet, the kind of the more rational kind of view is that people who are sane, educated, and stable make sane, educated, and stable choices in most cases. Right? People who have a good life don't want to ruin their life. And so, sure, people will make experimental choices and will try out new things and will make bad choices, or will. And will, some people will be hurt. And some people will be hurt. 
And there's no future of a world where that will not be happening, where people will not be dying from making bad choices or being exposed to bad drugs. And so uh, we, we keep trying to publish some information. <laughs> Better living through better information. And so, like, actually, so, I mean, I don't know what your annual budget is. I know that you get a variety of support through various sources that you've worked on, and it seems like it's, it's got to be a hard thing to do, and I'm sure that you face some challenges. If you had a huge cash infusion, what would you be doing differently or better? I think that we would be doing very similar work to what we're doing, but we would be doing it more comprehensively. One of the visualizations that we have often described is it, our job is a little bit like standing under a waterfall, trying to, a waterfall of data, trying to catch the best bits with a little tin cup. There's a lot of information that could be better synthesized and analyzed and published that we think would, would continue to help develop the understanding of psychoactive drugs, their use, why people use them, and what the path forward is to reduce harms and improve benefits that we just can't do because it honestly should be done by the government if only they could be, you know... Uh, separated from the political problem. Separated from the political problem. I mean, I think... It's a, a, a really large, um, well-funded organization. My main vision for that is, is kind of... Is, isn't actually that big an organization in terms of total budget. I mean, I'm, I'd be interested in sort of a $20 million a year kind of international clearinghouse review process monitoring system. I mean, the European... There's a EMCDDA is a European group that does a bunch of drug monitoring... But they're one of the better groups, but they're still intimately tied with policy and law enforcement. Their main target audience is not the general population who you're trying to improve the way that they act and help them. Um, and so, anyway, I like, I'd like to see an international organization that does approximately what we do and does it better. <laughs> no, I think that makes sense. When you have two masters, it's hard to serve them both equally. Yes. And then have you ever had sort of legal challenges? That, I mean, have you ever had sort of official attempts to kind of shut down the site because it's been perceived as a as a negative source or attempts to kind of freeze accounts or anything? Nope. We've never had any problem at all. Great. We don't, we don't okay. become involved in any illegal activity. We don't do anything illegal. We're an information and educational organization, and it appears as though the powers that be... Or willing to or, or, or let, let understand that and and don't stop us. I mean, we the beauty of a free society. Yes, relatively. Um, when it comes to ideas and information, and then so in comparison to other sites, other bulletin board sites like Blue Light and everything. I mean, it seems like, and you get unfiltered, unmoderated submissions. Do you ever just roll your eyes? Oh, of or, course. Um, <laughs> every day. Every single day. <laughs> but I roll my eyes at, at the stuff that gets published by even the best New York Times or whatever. And and I mean. So, I mean, journals. Yeah, the scientific <laughs> journals seem to be a medical research journal seem to be full of a lot of garbage. What do we get wrong? There's a lot of politics that enter in. One of my pet peeves is the conflation of abuse and use, the leaning towards or the the pressure towards having authors of medical journal articles only be able to talk about describe all use of psychoactive drugs, all unapproved, all unapproved use of psychoactive drugs as abuse is to me an unreasonable unreasonable direction to go. That's that's it's a false conflation and it, I think it harms the data. And when does use become abuse in your opinion? I would say that that it, you know there obviously that's a line that is can be debated for a long time but at, at the point where harm of some sort happens it would seem like an obvious first uh, requirement but there is no there's no there's no life without risk and so it's not like you can you can't say that just because one person was harmed driving a car that no one should ever be able to drive a car again. And then uh, anything else that we should be, that you read the literature that we should be doing differently? Well, I mean, I, I think how we're doing the main, it. 
the main thing that we would like to see more of from kind of the medical toxicology side is that, in our, in our opinion, there should be more public data. That we understand some of the reasons why, but like, you know, sort of friends of ours who are medical toxicologists can't have information that they have access to made public for reasons that are social, political, uh, financial, financial, um, <laughs> And we would love to see a system by which the poison control centers and things like that actually made data tables available to the public in more raw data format so that they could be reviewed and checked and made available to more people. We think uh, medical toxicologists are the bomb. Um, uh, poison control centers <laughs> the are, the, are, the, are the cool. Are the I think that's the first time anyone has ever said that ever. <laughs> that might be true. Um, They're the cool kids. I mean, this poison control center, I mean, what's cooler than that, right? And so I don't want to complain too much. Doctors who, who help people who are having yeah. um, some kind of a medical problem with a drug, you know, I don't. <laughs> more, more. Yeah, let's get more of them. Yes. It's important work, and it's great. It's great. It's great work. Um, you know, and there's a lot of pressures on all sides for all sorts of people, like toxicologists and information providers, and we understand the complexities of the field. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I I would love to see, like, we run a project called Ecstasy Data, which is the only anonymous testing for street drugs in the United States, which is not saying all that much, but uh, you can people submit their ecstasy tablets mostly to, to a DEA licensed to, lab. To a DEA licensed lab that gets tested and the DEA restricts very tightly what we what we're allowed to publish and what the what the lab's allowed to say. But we would love to see more data about the the actual contents of the pills and the substances that are going around partially because one of the main things in sort of the harm reduction work side of things is that one of the main ways that, that young people specifically and people in general, young people specifically, believe that there's a risk to taking a street drug is to see how polluted the stream of street drugs is. And that, that I'm not saying that we want to exaggerate that to you know, try to trick the kiddies not to take their ecstasy, but having only, I think we published 350 results or something like that last year in 2012, and I would love to see that be an order of magnitude larger. I'd love to see something from each city every month, you know, kind of something from the street drug that gets tested to show what it is that's being sold and have that data. What, what the person thought they were buying, what they actually ended up buying, and, and as would likely be the case because a lot of this would be in cases where people ended up in the hospital, what, you know, whether that caused a problem. Right, and that's a big source of adverse effects is people right. not people thinking they're taking something right. that they're not, right. taking something else. And then the site is nice in terms of a balance. And then also, I feel like it's nice because it approaches some of the unintended interactions between, you know, somebody on an SSRI right. or a, a psychoactive medication right. and another substance. So it attempts to kind of warn people about possible effects. I mean, that's, that's one of the um, things that we get we get the most requests for and is the hardest information to come by is, you know, what happens if, you know, just the... the, the crazy requests we get. You know, if I'm on, if I've had a liver transplant and I'm on, on, on transplant drugs and, and I want to take MDMA, is there going to be a, a, you know, it's like, well, how many people have had encountered that right, issue right, before? Right. It's like, well, we've got one. Let us, you know, let us know if you encounter a problem. <laughs> you know, we'll have one data point. Exactly. So there's a lot of, a, a lot of interactions and contraindications yeah, that, that of, are not recorded and, and, you know, people want to know about them, but they're... they're one of the big areas that I would love to be able to expand into, but we don't currently have the resources to be able to address it in a very uh, comprehensive way, is just dealing with uh, the kind of aging population and the number of different pharmaceuticals that people are on. But I think a majority of people over 50 now are taking at least some kind of prescription drug, and 
that seems particularly complicated if you're dealing with a population of people who are then using unapproved drugs, right, where they haven't been studied by the FDA and they haven't been approved for use with sort of combining your ecstasy with your, you know, your heart medication. Your heart medication. Yeah, oh, polypharmacy. It scares yeah. the heck out of all of us. Yeah. With an aging population, we're seeing more and more medications being prescribed, and that's, I mean, that's definitely happens daily in the emergency department. We see somebody on seven medications that interact with yeah. each other, and those are only the medications that I get on a pharmacy printout right. Right. in front of you. And then if you, um, so a lot of our a lot of our listeners are healthcare providers, and I feel like people do this better or worse in terms of approaching a patient that is using substances that you may or may not agree with or prescribe. How do you feel like we should be handling that encounter or doing it better? Well, I think that seems very individual um, from the reports that we get. You know, um, happily enough, I don't have to go into emergency rooms and uh, treat people and treat people or be treated. My view of that is that primarily that's kind of an individual kind of doctor basis. Whatever, there's a lot of snickering that happens when people are kind of hurt themselves, uh, make stupid choices. You know, not necessarily when they're well, but it's also it's, it's also a really you know I, I recognize and I don't know what the solution is to the very complex issues of whether or not people do or should or would provide real information to their doctors about what they took if they're having a, experiencing a medical problem because of the legal complications. And so I don't... It would be nice to separate it, those it, issues out. It would, be, it would be nice. I mean, people ask us whether they should tell their doctor when they go in, and, and the answer is, well, it's certainly going to be better for your health, but it's, going to, it's more likely to lead to a legal problem. So I, I, I have a hard time conscientiously telling people that, that the blanket answer is, yes, they should always tell their doctor, and that's too bad. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is, this happens all the time, and I have to say that my... I think the, the goal of, of somebody in medical care is always to provide care to the patient, and that's always best with a full knowledge slate. And, I mean, I've, I've never reported anything to a legal authority for purely legal reasons because it's reported to me in confidence right. and it's for the care of the patient. The interface between the law and medicine is an especially sticky and uncomfortable area. Yeah. And, I mean, sometimes we'll get people who get brought in and, you know, police say right. they, need a, they need an alcohol test and they need a drug test. And, you know, if it's not good for the patient, it's not right. usually done. Although the flip side to that also is I had an elderly couple that came in and she had tried um, a marijuana a cookie for the first time and uh, purposefully. Yep. And and was enjoying it, and he kind of his uh, her husband brought uh, brought her in because he really wanted her to kind of be scolded, and and like <laughs> he wanted me to warn her about the extreme danger she had exposed herself to, and there was certainly a amount of snickering yeah. kind of behind the counter because it was hard. And it was like okay, yeah. Yeah. careful, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know I'm supposed to be I'm supposed to be angry, but I, that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, yes, uh, so no, we we try to approach things yeah. approach things gently. One question, though, just because you, you, you sort of re- repeatedly talk about particular age groups who are exploring or maybe not fully realizing the risks of things, experiencing drugs. Do you feel like, I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i not going to inquire about your families or anything like that. Is there an age that is maybe too young for some of these substances? Well, I think the answer is yes. You phrased it in a way that we can <laughs> strong affirmative on that. How to draw that line? I mean, I, I the... Where most of us would probably draw that line is probably older than the average age of initiation. And so what do you do about that? That's, that's a little, you know. I mean, it's exactly the same question as the sex question. It's sort of, well, what age should kids start having sex? You know, it's like, <laughs> like well, everybody older, thinks that should be 19 because then it's actually 15. Right. So what, I mean. Older right. than my child, right? Um, that, yeah. You know, my kids aren't having sex till they're 30. It's a fairly tricky question, and it's a like in terms of sort of the evolution of the species, right? Sort of the evolution of culture, sort of like the, looking towards the future, sort of what can we do better? I don't know how you get 
kids, younger people, you know, sort of the once you kind of head into kind of the teen range at this point, sort of the sort of 12 to 18, pretty much at any age in there, the kids can get access to sex and they can get access to drugs and they can get access to alcohol. And what are the right ways to help people make one of the things that we tell people sometimes, tell young people sometimes, is that there's a lot of life left ahead of you at the age of 15. You don't need to cram it all in at the age of 15. That's, that's right. one thing I can tell you. You don't you'll, have to try it all today. You'll, you'll, you'll actually start, enjoy start it slow. Yeah, you'll enjoy it more if you, if you wait and go slower. And, but that's very uncompelling to, to 14-year-olds. Incredibly. Well, and the other thing is I was reviewing something the other day, and, and uh, part of us providing information is we assume that people have a health motive for their decisions, and there are a certain group of people that don't have a health motive for their decisions who believe they're indestructible. And it, it can be very challenging uh, to try and uh, appeal. And uh, I feel like so we've talked about kind of the origins of the site in some respects and how it's evolved a bit and how it's set up and sort of some of the pressures you've experienced and some of the articles you review and kind of talk to you about um, about things that you would like us to be doing. Is there anything that you feel like we've that we've really missed or that you would want to put out there if you could? The only thing that I thought of slightly earlier was that I'm not sure that we have specifically mentioned that, that and it, it might give slightly better context for the site is that Arrowhead is a nonprofit educational organization approved in the United States as a, as a nonprofit. So we are not quite as fringe and crazy little little sub-organization as you might think if you didn't hear that piece of the pie. So, so, of so does that mean donations are tax deductible? It does mean donations are tax yeah, deductible. And we fill out a lot of paperwork. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of accounting. <laughs> a lot of accounting. And then, um, oh, one tiny thing actually also. So somebody who's, who's looking at your website versus looking at a, kind of an unmoderated bulletin board website, what's the danger to the unmoderated bulletin board website? That you well, waste a lot of your time. <laughs> it'll be really hard to slog through. I think that sites like you mentioned earlier, Blue Light, you know, uh, there's, there's a variety forum. of drugs forum. There's, there's a variety of, of, of forum sites like that which are uh, very useful to us. They are some of the things that we go to, some of the places we go to first to find out what people are doing and what doses they're taking and what the dangers are that people, are, health risks that people are experiencing, and they are great for that, but it takes a lot of time to process through them. So there's the possibility of misunderstanding them or reading the wrong set of posts where somebody was, was just wrong about what they're saying slightly more than and hopefully comes through once, any, we've, any, once any, we've processed it all. Anytime you can read a conversation online or a discussion where it isn't just a flame war, you're having a good experience. And so <laughs> there's a lot of really good resources online. Wikipedia is a great place to start, and Drugs Forum and Blue Light are great places if you're looking to spend a lot of time reading about specific people talking about their use and going back and forth in kind of chatty conversation. And what we try to do is synthesize that a bit and make it so you can read it it's a little right. easier. <laughs> we're, we're a primary source where Wikipedia is, is by definition a, they call themselves a secondary resource, they call themselves a uh, synthesis. There's a specific prohibition on Wikipedia, um, not always followed, uh, against original research. So that they're, it's not supposed to be the source of original documents where Arrowhead and Blue Light and, and Drug Forum things like that are actually sources of original documentation. Thank you both for kind of dedicating yourselves to put information out there, regardless of if you agree or disagree with the use of psychoactive substances. It's definitely a good resource for uh, medical toxicologists and physicians and just people in general to get a sense of um, what people are using and, and why they're using and how they're using. Obviously, you two are very passionate about education and um, have really put a lot of time and energy into that. So I thank you both for, um, for doing that and for taking the time to, to have this interview.
Well, thank you very much for inviting us to join you. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today at Talks Talk. I think that was just a great opportunity to talk to two people who definitely are coming at these issues from a different perspective than I am, different training, but really provided some insight. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. We're hoping to do more interviews like that in the future, as well as continue our uh, discussion of current issues in toxicology. I think that as these new drugs come out, and even we're hearing about some new uh, possible uh, opioid derivatives that are hitting especially New England and and coming out of Canada and other places that um, uh, keeping your ear to the ground, so to speak, is going to be becoming more and more important so that we should be uh, opening doors and uh, and building bridges rather than breaking them down. And hopefully on future episodes of the show, we'll get a chance to talk to different uh, different people about similar issues. I'm definitely excited about some of the episodes we've got coming up. And definitely some of you listeners were kind enough to suggest future guests, and uh, we will try and get a hold of them and talk to them and we're always open to suggestions for future show ideas. You can send those to us from our website toxtalk.org or email us talkstalk at talkstalk.org or of course our Facebook or Twitter feed. Talks Talk is a production of the UMass Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. This is Matt Zuckerman signing off.